0: First Baptist Melbourne Podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened, as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands? Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. So he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here, here's my oldest, older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king?" But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that he was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him so that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke, Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines, And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, and that Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. One by one, Jesse's sons stood before the prophet. A new king would soon be found. It wasn't the oldest or the strongest chosen on that day. Even still, the giants fell and the nations trembled when they stood in his way. Where others saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your word today. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Father, we thank you for the joy of our salvation we have because of your son Jesus and all that he has done for us. Lord, our heart's desire is that we would follow you, that we would live lives that would please you, that we would live lives of faith, that we would grow to be more like your son Jesus. And so, Father, we pray you would use your word in our lives in that way and to that end. Even now, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Eggnog. You either love it or you hate it. Now, it may seem a little weird to be talking about eggnog in the dead of summer, since it is a holiday beverage. But the kids, especially in this room, might be interested to know that a little over a week ago, on June 25th, we passed the halfway mark. And now Christmas, next Christmas, is closer to right now than last Christmas. I know I'm excited about it also and one of the things that uh, gets me excited as Christmas gets closer is that eggnog begins to show up in the stores again because I love it and I know I'm not alone. Is there anybody else out there who loves eggnog? I have A few hands out there but what I've learned in my life is this that when it comes to eggnog there, there really is no neutrality. Uh, You either love it, as some of you did, whose hands went up, or you hate it. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I hate it, I abhor it, right? That's uh, most of the room, right? For every person who likes it, there's two or three who cannot stand it. That's kind of how it is. Nobody's neutral about it. It's one of those things, you either love it or you hate it. And King David was kind of like that also. You either loved him or you hated him. Some people loved him, in fact, Most people loved him, but not everybody. One person in particular absolutely hated him. And you know it's actually the same with the Lord Jesus, the son of David. You either love him or you hate him. And he doesn't let us stay neutral. Neutrality is not an option when it comes to Jesus. He forces us actually to make a choice. Before we're through, we'll come back to that. So here's the plan for our time together. We're going to spend the beginning part of our time just walking through this story in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And, and then at the end, we'll finish by talking about some of the things we can learn from this story and apply to our lives today. Of course, chapter 18 comes right after chapter 17, which we looked at last week, which contains one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Uh, The story of David slaying the giant Goliath with nothing but a sling and a stone. And so at the end of 1 Samuel 17, Saul calls for the young hero uh, to come and to meet with him. He wants to find out more about him and more about his family. Verse 57 of chapter 17 says, David was standing there in front of King Saul... Holding the head of Goliath in his hand. And Saul asked him, Whose son are you? And David said, I'm the son of Jesse, your servant from Bethlehem. And apparently, Jonathan was either waiting in the wings, listening into this conversation, or perhaps he was even standing there at his father, King Saul's side, and he was listening to everything that David was saying and i believe that jonathan immediately sensed a kindred spirit in david both of them had displayed great faith in the lord both of them had been used by god to bring about great victories for god's people and so uh, verse 1 of chapter 18 says that right then and there a deep friendship was formed between saul or between jonathan and david and we'll talk more about that uh, next week when we look at chapter Twenty says that their hearts were knit together. In verse 3, they made a covenant, covenant of friendship between these two men that both of them would keep. In verse 2, it says that David no longer went back and forth from serving King Saul to helping his father in his hometown of Bethlehem because Saul now commanded that David would remain with him as one of his servants all the time from this point on. In verse 5, it says that Saul set David over some of his soldiers as a commanding officer. And that decision seems to have been universally accepted. All of the soldiers loved David. All the people loved David. The women in town loved David. And they were quite literally singing his praises. And you see that in verses 6 and 7. One day when David returned with the soldiers after a raid against the Philistines, that the women folk in town ran out to meet the soldiers and they were singing and they were dancing and they were playing tambourines and they even made up a little song a little a little jingle and you can see the words of it there in verse 7 they said Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands I uh, most likely due to the way that Hebrew poetry is Is written. they probably didn't intend to slight Saul with this song at all. They were just speaking about the accomplishments of both of these men, and yet Saul interpreted it in the worst possible light. I don't know what it is for you, what song it is, but I think that all of us probably have a song that, for whatever reason, we can't stand. I mean, for me, uh, one of those songs is It's a Small World. I don't know why I don't like it. Maybe there was a traumatic childhood memory where I was stuck in line for like an hour listening to that song on repeat over and over again, but I just don't care for the song. I'm sure you have a song like that. I don't know what your least favorite song is, but I do know what King Saul's least favorite song is because this is it. He did not like this song. In fact, not only did he not like it, but the more that he thought about the lyrics of this song It just made him spitting mad. He did not like that they ascribed to David 10,000 that he had killed and to Saul, only 1,000. He didn't care for it. He was, in a word, jealous. He was jealous of the praise and adoration that David was receiving. And then, as we see how this transpired, I think the last line of verse 8 is very telling. He says, Now what more can he have but the kingdom? I think Saul is beginning to believe that David is the one that Samuel had told him about back in chapter 15, this neighbor who was better than him that God was going to give the kingdom to. And so in verse 9, it says that from that day on, after he heard that song, Saul began to eye David. He began to look at him suspiciously. And it didn't take long for that jealousy and that suspicion to turn into a murderous rage. In fact, in verse 10, it says, The very next day Saul was in his house, and that distressing spirit from the Lord came upon him. And every time we read that, we need to remember that Saul is a man who is under the judgment of God because of his Disobedience and the spirit that repeatedly came over him was a part of God's judgment. And so this spirit was upon him. He was in one of his moods, as they probably said. And so they went and got David to come and play the harp for him, to try to calm him down, as David used to be able to do. The problem now was that David himself was the biggest source of Saul's agitation. And so maybe as Saul was sitting there watching David strum his harp, the words of that song came into his mind. David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul has only slain his thousands. And he said, well, I'm going to slay one more right now. And so he takes up his spear and he tries to pin David to the wall. But David escaped. And it actually says in this text that this happened two times. And then it happens a third time in chapter 19. Now, maybe at this point, David... Uh, Does not think that Saul is really trying to kill him. Maybe he just thinks Saul is in one of his moods. And when he gets like that, he has no control over what he's doing when he's in that state of mind. But God's word lets us in on what was really going on in Saul's heart. And he was trying to kill David. He was trying to kill David because he was jealous of David. Verse 12 says he was afraid of David. Fear and jealousy are close cousins. He was afraid of David because he knew the Lord was with David and knew the Lord had left him. And so because Saul's afraid of him, he decides to promote him, put him over more soldiers and make him spend more of his time out on the battlefields. And as would become explicit in verse 17, what Saul was really hoping was that the Philistines would do his job for him, that they would kill David on the battlefield and he wouldn't have to do it himself. And as sad as it is that Saul used that tactic to use his enemies to try to get rid of someone, it's even more sad that David does the same thing years later when he tries to get rid of Uriah to cover up his sin. But here in verses 14 through 16, it says that at this time David was wise in everything that he did. The more Saul promoted him, the more the people got to see David, the more they fell in love with him. And that's kind of a recurring theme in this story. Everything Saul tries to do to get rid of David gloriously backfires in his face and ends up causing David to just be loved more and more by everybody but Saul. If you remember back to chapter 17, one of the rewards that was supposed to be given to the man who would kill Goliath was a chance to marry the king's daughter. Verse 17 seems to indicate that the king had set a certain time for that to happen, for David to marry his oldest daughter, Miriam. But when Saul talked to him about it, David replied very humbly. Look at the words of verse 18. David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? In spite of all that David has accomplished, he still doesn't think he's worthy to be the son-in-law. Of the king and so King David, King Saul decides to use what David had said as an excuse to give his daughter in marriage to someone else at the last minute. It was a dirty trick to play, although not quite as bad as what Laban did to Jacob many years before. This was a close second. But verse twenty says that another one of Saul's daughters, Michael, had fallen in love with David and wanted to marry him, and Saul agrees. To it, but notice in verse 21 why Saul agrees to it. Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son in law today. I mean, wow. (laughs) What a terrible father and what a terrible father-in-law. Here is someone who is trying to use his own child, his own daughter, to take vengeance on his enemy to murder his son-in-law before the two of them are even married. I don't know if you have a bad relationship with your in-laws, but surely it's not this bad. Surely they didn't try to kill you before your wedding day. But this is what Saul seeks to do to David. And I think the rest of this kind of conversation and negotiation that comes in the following verses played out exactly the way that Saul thought it would and wanted it to. He knew that when he approached David a second time about becoming his son-in-law that David would reply humbly. That David would say he was a poor man that he didn't have anything to give as a bride price. And remember in this culture and in this day and age for a man to marry a woman, a dowry or a bride price would be given to the father of the bride. And, and so again, Saul knows that David has nothing to give and that's how he will reply. But Saul already has the trap sprung. Because he had the perfect bride price in mind, which he knew that David would not... Refuse, He said, David, you don't need to give me any money or any possessions in order to marry my daughter. All you have to do is bring me back the foreskins of a hundred dead, uncircumcised Philistines as proof that you killed them, and then you can marry her. I'm just going to leave the foreskin part alone um, because that is just disgusting, but not as disgusting as Saul's heart. Because again, what is he trying to do? He's trying to use the Philistines to murder his own servant. Like everything else, Saul tries to do this backfires also because David, always the overachiever, comes back not with 100, but with 200 foreskins. Verse 27 says someone had the job of counting them. That's pretty much the grossest job I've ever heard of. And so Saul had no choice but to give Michael to David as his wife. And at this point, Saul really starts to lose it. He is overcome with envy of David. He knows that his daughter, Michael, loves him. He knows that the people love him. He knows that the Lord loves him and the Lord was with him and he just couldn't stand it anymore. So verse 29, it says that now Saul became David's enemy, not off and on, not just when the wrong mood struck him, but continually, all the time. From this day on. And you see, up until now, Saul's attempts to kill David had been secret. Nobody knew what was going on in Saul's heart. Nobody knew his real intentions. But in chapter 19, in a high level cabinet meeting, Saul lets his servants know and he lets his son Jonathan know how he really felt about David. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. All right? So at this point, there's no hiding it. He's literally ordering his servants to put David to death. He's putting a, a price on his head. And in the rest of chapter 19, there are no less than four attempts upon David's life by King Saul and four separate ways that David's life is spared and saved by the Lord. First off, in verses 2 through 7, David's life is saved by diplomacy. By diplomacy. It is no accident that Jonathan, who is a loyal, committed friend to David, is right there to hear what Saul intends to do. And so Jonathan warns David, and then he intercedes for David with his father Saul. Look at verses 2 through 7 with me. It says, so Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and then what I observe I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you, because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hand and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And you can tell that Jonathan had thought through what he would say to his father, what was most likely to strike the right place in his heart. And so he speaks calmly with him, he speaks rationally with him, and he takes his father back all the way to what we read about in chapter 17, where David had killed Goliath and how Saul rejoiced when that happened because he was the enemy of Saul, he was the enemy of, of the people of God and he says, listen, you would be sinning against the Lord to kill David. He's done nothing but good to you. He's done nothing but serve you, and and you would be taking innocent blood, and the implication is uh, you would be bringing judgment down, not only upon yourself, but upon the whole nation of Israel if you were to kill someone without a cause. And for the time being, at least, Saul was affected by what Jonathan had said, and he pledges not to kill David. But Saul was so unstable by this time that his pledge didn't last long. It only lasted until the next time he had a spear in his hand. And so look at verses 8 through 10. It says, and there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. David was playing music with his hand, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. So the first time, David was saved through diplomacy. The second time, David was saved by dodging. Verse 8 it says that war flared up again, and once again, David was victorious in battle. And if Saul was in his right mind, he would have celebrated that. would have celebrated that one of his own servants was being used by God to defeat his enemies and to rescue his own people. But Saul is not in his right mind. And the more David succeeds, the more it infuriates Saul. And so again, we read about this familiar scene in Saul's house. He's upset. They go and get David. I'm not sure why they keep going to get David at this time, but they do. And David plays the harp, and once again, the spear is in Saul's hand. It seems as though there would have been a safer place to keep it, but that's where it was. And so for the third time, Saul tries to play pin the tail on David, and he throws the spear at him, and again, David evades it. And Saul misses again, and verse 10 says that David fled and escaped. Fled and escaped from this time on in David's life. Fleeing is all that David would do as long as Saul is still alive. In verse 11, we find out that David tries to escape to his own house. But even that was not a safe place for him to be because Saul sent people after him. Look at that, verses 11 through 17. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image, a, a god, a household god, and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head. And covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was an image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? And so David was saved by diplomacy, and then he was saved by dodging, and now he was saved by deception. Apparently, Michael saw her father's men staking out the house, and so she sides with her husband over her father and warns him. And now notice, this is two times in this story that Saul's attempts to kill David have, have been undone by his own children, first by his son Jonathan, and now by his daughter, Michael. And so Michael convinces David to escape out a window. And then she comes up with a plan to buy David some more time to get away. And so she takes an image. Again, it's a word for a large household god or idol. Apparently, this one was big enough to look like a six-foot-tall person laying down in the bed. Now, this raises a pretty obvious question. What in the world is David doing with a six-foot-tall idol In his house, in the first place. Maybe it was Michael's. Maybe it was a wedding present from one of their idol worshiping friends. But I can't imagine that David, who loved the Lord like he did, put this idol on his gift registry at Bed Bath and Beyond. But nonetheless, here it is in his house. And Michael uses it. She dresses it up, she puts it in the bed probably with covers over it, and then she puts a little goat hair on the head of the statue to make it look like David's hair. And when Saul's servants come to kill David, they peek in the room, and Michael shoos them away and says, he's just not feeling well. He's not sick. Why don't you come back at a better time? And I don't know if it's just because I'm a child of the 80s or what, but, but this whole scene, it just reminds me of this, if you've ever, if you've ever seen this. So it worked for Ferris Bueller, and it worked for David also. And this stall tactic allowed enough time for David to get away. And then Saul gets even more crazy. He said, I don't even care if he is sick. Bring the whole bed to me, and I will kill him right there in the bed. I don't know about you, but that, that just doesn't seem very honorable. But it seems like Saul is well past that at this time and of course when the servants go to get to bed they realize that they have been duped and Saul is furious with his daughter and says why did you trick me like this and then she lies again and she said oh well David said he was going to kill me so I had to let him go and notice much like with the Hebrew midwives or with the story of Rahab in Jericho the Bible doesn't say anything good or bad about Michael's lying the Bible doesn't exonerate her for lying But God is able to use what she did and even the deception that she used to save his servant David again. In verse 18, David decides he can't stay where Saul is anymore. And so he runs off to the prophet Samuel and Ramah. But even there, Saul comes after him. Let's read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. And then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? Someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And so he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied. until so he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in a like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, Is Saul also among the prophet. So so far, God has saved David through diplomacy, through dodging, through deception, and finally through just a straight-up divine takedown. And this is a pretty comical scene. As, as three times in a row, Saul sends these groups of servants to go and take David or to kill him right there. And every time they get there, they are swept up in the euphoria of the worship service that is going on between Samuel and this group of prophets in residence that are training with him. And every time they get close enough, the Spirit of God comes on them. They forget why they came in the first place, and they just start speaking the words of God. And then Saul sends a second group and a third group. And, and then Saul says, probably he said something to himself like, if you want something done, you just have to do it yourself, right? And so he decides he's going to go, and of course the same thing happens to him. The Spirit of God just overwhelms him, and he forgets why he came, and he forgets why he came so much that it says that he strips off all his clothes, and he lies down on the ground naked all night long. Well, other than when he goes to see a witch in chapter 28, this is probably the low point for King Saul. He is humiliated. He is really a parody of who he used to be. And just like his clothing, the kingdom he once ruled is being stripped from him by the Lord. And so that's the story, and it is an interesting story, isn't it? I mean, you have... A catchy little jingle in this story. You have spears flying at people's heads. You have foreskins being cut off. You have statues dressed up to make and look like people and put in the bed. You have King Saul lying all night long in his birthday suit. I don't know if you believe everything in the Bible the way that I do, but you certainly cannot say that the Bible is dull. Not only is the Bible not dull, but it's also not dead. It's a living and active word from God. And he wants to use it, he wants to use even this portion of it to speak to our heart, to make us more like Christ today if we'll allow him to speak to us the way he wants to. And so what I want to do with the time we have left, I want us to look through three windows in this story. And as we look through these three windows, I want us to see a person on each side. First of all, let's look through the window of Jonathan And look at Saul. I do believe we are meant to contrast this father and son, Jonathan and Saul, in this story. Because if you think about it, out of Saul and Jonathan, if there was anybody who really had the greater temptation to be jealous, it was Jonathan. After all, everybody would have thought that Jonathan was in line to be the next king. And actually, in a book filled with unworthy sons... Jonathan is the most worthy son in this book. He shows remarkable faith in the Lord. He shows courage in the Lord every time we meet him. And he could have thought to himself, you know what? I should be the king. Why Why should God choose David instead of me? I believe in the Lord just as much as David does. That's what he could have thought. And yet you don't see even a hint of that in this character of Jonathan. In fact, you see the exact opposite. You see Jonathan being willing to risk his life for David. You see Jonathan being loyal and and encouraging and doing all he can to help David. In fact, back in chapter 18 and verse 4, you see this remarkable scene where Jonathan actually takes off his royal armor. He takes off his sword and his belt and he gives them to David. This is more than a gift. This is Jonathan recognizing God's hand upon David's life. This is Jonathan recognizing that God had chosen David as the anointed one, that God had chosen David instead of himself, and he doesn't seem upset or jealous about that fact in the slightest. Instead, he is glad. And when you look through that window of Jonathan and his faithfulness to God and the sincerity of his heart, the wickedness of Saul's, crazy jealousy is that much more clear to our eyes. We can see in Saul's story, perhaps as much as any story in the Bible, the way that jealousy can grip our hearts and literally destroy our lives from the inside out. Saul is a perfect example of what Solomon wrote in the Proverbs when he said this. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Indeed it is. It's like a cancer that grows and grows. It makes us resent people that we should be thankful for just because they get some praise and adoration that we think we should have. Our text said that when Saul heard that song with those lyrics... About the 10,000 and the 1,000 that he eyed David jealously from that day on. Friend, is there somebody in your life that you are eyeing? With a jealous eye right now. Maybe because in your estimation they have 10,000 blessings and you only have 1,000. They have 10,000 gifts and you only have 1,000 gifts. Or they have $10,000 or maybe $10 million and you have like 10 cents. And you eye, you eye them jealously. Maybe there's somebody at your work that is getting all the credit that you believe you deserve. Maybe everybody's saying that they did this much and you did that much and you know it's really the other way around and you just can't take it anymore. Maybe you're even fighting jealousy when it comes to other folks in the church or other folks in ministry and, and you just you look at them and, and you, you want to be used the way someone else is used. You want to have the gifts that someone else has. Friend, be, be careful about that. Because jealousy is evil. And Saul's story teaches us that it opens the door to so much more evil once we let it get a hold of our hearts. Listen to what James says about envy in the New Testament. He says this, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual. Listen to the word, demonic. Demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. You say, okay, I I get it. Jealousy is evil and and I am jealous, but what what am I supposed to do about it? How do I get rid of it? Well, here's what I've learned in my life as I've had to wrestle against jealousy in my own heart. The gospel message is the only antidote to the poison of jealousy. In our hearts, The gospel message is the only antidote to the poison of jealousy in our hearts. The gospel teaches us that we are loved, not because of all that we have done, but in spite of all that we have done. The gospel teaches us that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or to make God love us any less. The gospel teaches us that the opinion, really the only opinion in the universe that in the end will really matter. That he already has formed his opinion of us. And if we know Christ, his verdict is already in. And his verdict is that he loves us. And his verdict is that we are his sons and his daughters by faith. And we will be his children forever. And he has told us in his word that everything that belongs to Christ, which is everything, also belongs to To us, we don't have to be jealous of anybody, no matter what they have, because everything that really matters is already ours in Jesus Christ. And we need to think more about that truth. We need to think about how deeply loved we are by God. As the song says, we are fully known and loved by Him. And that truth has the power to eradicate the poison of envy in our hearts if we will let it here's a second window we need to look through in this story we need to look through the window of david and see jesus every story in the bible is designed to point us to jesus and in many cases the character of david gives us a picture of his greater descendant the son of david jesus christ and there are really so many echoes of jesus in this story more than we have time to talk about. Throughout this story, we read about David's wisdom, how he was wise in everything that he did. Of course, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus was and is the wisdom of God made flesh. Throughout this story, we read about David's humility, how in spite of all that he had done, all that he had accomplished, he still didn't think too much of himself. He carried himself with humility, even in the way he interacted with a crazy king. And yet there's no greater example of humility in the Bible than the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to leave the throne of heaven and to come to earth and take on flesh and die on a cross for us. But as we look through this window of this particular part of David's life, where there's all these attempts being made upon David's life, we can also see Jesus in several additional ways. Just like in David's story, God protected Jesus from harm until his hour had come. There are many times in Jesus's life where it seemed like he was in danger, and yet until the time came, until the hour came for Jesus to die on the cross, which of course was the reason why he came, God the Father protected Jesus from all harm. I think about the story of of the first time Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he got done preaching, he had said some pretty controversial things. And and to say that the people in his hometown did not care for the sermon is an understatement. Look at what happened when the service led out. Luke chapter four. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. I love that last phrase. Jesus just passed right on through and went on his way. They took him to the brow of the hill. They were ready to throw him off the cliff. And Jesus said, nope, not going to happen today. My hour has not yet come. This was God protecting his anointed one, his Messiah, until the time. Here's another thing I see. Just like in David's story, people were jealous Of Jesus and wanted to kill him because of their jealousy and and really you see that all the way throughout the four gospels particularly the pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders were increasingly jealous of Jesus Christ they were jealous because he had crowds of 10,000 and they had crowds of a thousand or maybe ten they were jealous of the miracles that he did. They were jealous of what the people were saying about him. They were jealous of the power that he possessed. And and just like with Saul, in the end, their jealousy led them to a murderous rage to conspire to hand Jesus over to be killed. And even Pilate, in Jesus' trial, recognized that envy is what was driving them. Mark 15 says this, For he, Pilate, knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of what? Envy. Just like with Saul and David, people were jealous of Jesus and wanted to kill him. But then also we can see this too. Just like in David's story, God used the envy and murderous intent of ungodly men to bring about the salvation of his people. Everything that happened to David in this story and in the stories to come was all a part of God's plan. It was God's plan to prepare David it was God's plan to elevate David, to be the shepherd and the leader of his people. It was all part of God's plan to raise up his anointed king. And we see that truth even more when it comes to Jesus, the son of David. God used the evil of ungodly men to put Jesus on the cross, and that was a part of God's plan. Peter said this to his fellow countrymen in Acts chapter 2. Look at these words. Peter said, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter was saying, yes, you put him on the cross, but all of this happened because of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all his plan. This was not an accident because at the very center of God's redemptive story is the Son of God dying on a cross for your sins and for mine. We've looked through the window of Jonathan to see Saul. We've looked through the window of David to see Jesus, but finally, we just need to look through the window of God's word and see ourselves. I said at the beginning that Jesus does not allow us to be neutral, kind of like eggnog when it comes to that. We either love it or we hate it. We either love Jesus or or we hate him. We either follow him or we walk away from him. We either become God's child by faith or we remain God's enemy in our stubborn stubborn rebellion. What will we do? choose, and each of us has to make that choice. And so much of this passage is about the different reactions that people have to David. And remember who David was. He was the one God had anointed king. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is the word Messiah, the Greek word Christ. So David was the Christ with a lowercase c for the people of God In his lifetime. And we can see in the way that they respond to their Messiah with a lowercase m. A picture of the way we today can choose to respond to our ultimate Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And really I think Saul and Jonathan give us the two main ways that we can respond to Jesus, the Christ. I don't know if you noticed that our story started and ended with people taking off their clothes. Right? It started with Jonathan voluntarily taking off his robes that symbolized his claim to the throne and giving them to David because he knew that David was the true king that God had chosen. Then we go to the end of the story and we see Saul who has been totally stopped in his tracks by the power of God, and he's in such a frenzied state that he strips off his clothes and he lies naked all night long. And in that, we see a picture of God stripping the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to David just like he promised. One way or another in this story, David was going to be king. He was God's anointed one. People could either humbly acknowledge that, like Jonathan did, or they could rail against it with all of their might and end up humiliated and defeated, like Saul did. And, friend, here is the truth Jesus is the anointed king, He is the Christ, He is the Messiah. And one day he will return and he will rule and he will reign forever and ever. And this is actually going to happen no matter what we do. And this is going to happen no matter what you choose or what I choose. This is just a fact of the universe. This is a truth to build our life on that Jesus is the Christ. But right now, because God loves us, he's giving us an opportunity to respond to the Christ. And instead of responding to him the way that Saul did with stubbornness and with rebellion and just railing against it and saying, no, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to be my own king. I'm not going to let my kingdom be taken away from me and given to anybody else. Instead, God is giving us in his grace an opportunity to do what Jonathan did. To take off the robes that signify our clinging to our rights to be the king of our life and to give them to Jesus, who is the rightful king, who is the true Messiah, and to bow down at his feet. Friend, won't you turn to Jesus? Won't you surrender your life to the king? Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room who has not yet taken that step to surrender to the King. Father, in your grace and in your mercy, that right now you would draw them to that place of brokenness. Father, we all have to get to that point where we look down and we're stripped of all of our pretension, all of our rationalizations. Father, we look down and we just, we see ourselves as the sinful people that we are before you that every one of us has lived as rebels against your word, against your anointed king. Father, may we see the evil of that. May we see our sin for how great it really is in your sight. And Father, may that draw us to the cross where we see that our sin was paid for, where we see that you loved us so much that our anointed king suffered and died in our place so that we could be forgiven. God, what grace, what love you have showed us. Father, may nothing keep us from your king today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.